Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. As protests against racial injustice continue across America, colleges and universities are increasingly speaking out in support of the protests. What's more, some are also taking action to investigate or punish faculty critical of the protesters' perceived aims. One professor at the University of Central Florida is being investigated for tweets he posted in which he stated, quote, black privilege is real, close quote. In support, he cited affirmative action, scholarships, and other perceived privileges. There was intense pressure to fire the professor, leading to UCF's provost to beg the professor's current and former students to report bias, even anonymously, so that they may, quote, investigate and deal with it, close quote. At UCLA, an investigation was launched into a lecturer who read aloud Martin Luther King's famous letter from a Birmingham jail. The letter uses the N-word twice, which the lecturer did not censor in his reading. There were also objections to the professor showing a documentary in his class in which a lynching is described, graphic images are shown, and the narrator used the N-word in describing the history of lynching. And then recently, at Catholic University, a professor was suspended and then fired, allegedly without a hearing, following student complaints about his Twitter activity, including tweets critical of the Obamas and Hillary Clinton. And all of this happened just in June. What does all this mean for academic freedom and freedom of speech? And as college administrations increasingly opine and take sides in contemporary political and social controversies, does this represent a shift in values and purpose? And if so, is it for the better? Joining us today to talk about what's been happening in academia in recent weeks is Glenn Lowry. He's the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Social Sciences at Brown University. He recently wrote a response to a letter from Brown President Christina Paxson about the protest, to which he objected, asking, Why must this university's senior administration declare, on behalf of the institution as a whole and with one voice, that they unanimously, without any subtle differences of emphasis or nuance, interpret contentious current events through a single lens? Professor Lowry, welcome onto the show. Thank you, Nico. Very good to be with you. So let's just jump right in. In your response to Brown President Christina Paxson, you say, evidently, we're now all charged to promote the policy agenda of the progressive wing of American politics. You then ask, is this what a university is supposed to be doing? Begging this question begs another question. What do you believe a university should be doing? <laughs> well, we should be educating our uh, uh, charges, our students, um, in, the, in the service of their uh, becoming familiar with what it is that has been uh, uh, come to be known and thought uh, ab- about the great questions of uh, of uh, human existence, uh, and uh, also fostering uh, inquiry, fostering research uh, along those lines. We're we're teachers, and and we are researchers. We're we are custodians of a great tradition. Uh, we're supposed to be liberating our charges, our students, uh, by empowering them. Um, and we're supposed to be laying bare the unknown, uh, pushing the frontiers of knowledge and reflection and such. And if that sounds like a, a speech, I mean, I, I just made it up, but it sounds right to me. 
And you think Christina Paxson's letter didn't stick to that purpose in a way that it should have. And why is that? You know, if she had just said, as uh, president of the university, she is a leader, she is a spokesperson, she represents the university. These these events are are powerful, they're dramatic, they're compelling. Uh, the country, there are demonstrations all over, there's remonstration, there's, there's uh, mobilization. If she had said, this is a moment and here's what I think, um, I would have been fine with her sending that around to all, you know, 10,000 Brown students and to the several thousand people who are on the staff here. Uh, she was letting us know what she thought. But that's not what happened. What happened was, as I said in my response, uh, all of the senior uh, administrative leadership of the university signed on to a political letter. It was political. It was the Black Lives Matter line, if you will, you know, talking about anti-Black racism, systemic racism, 400 years. This kind of construction was being used in the letter. Now, here's what I think. I think a university can't have a political position like that because it forecloses the possibility of deliberating over the open questions which the uh, political conflict raises. For instance, was George Floyd killed by that police officer because of his race? Did the fact that the police officer was white and that George Floyd was black matter? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't think Christina Paxson does either. Uh, I, I know what the social justice workers want the answer to be. So now here we have the university in its total administrative leadership uh, uniformly and unanimously endorsing an arguable interpretation of contentious contemporary events. Uh, how would I ever in my class teach my students to think about both sides of those events when the leadership of the university has already foreclosed such thinking? Uh, how dare I express myself as I am doing to you right now without knowing that in doing so at this university, I take my professional life in my hands. I don't mean that my tenure will be canceled, but I mean that my life will be canceled because it has been pronounced that Brown values, quote unquote, require the Black Lives Matter narrative about contentious events. This is horrible. It's, it's the debasing of the currency in the university, in my opinion. And I felt violated by it. Now, <laughs> I know that people will have a hysterical reaction to me saying so, because the violation wasn't equivalent to a sexual assault. But if you tell me as a professor at this university that I can't stand in good company amongst my students and my colleagues, and I dare not in my classroom argue the case, because it's supposed to be self-evident, that one faction in the political debate is correct, like I say, you're debasing the currency. There's a, there's a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder who recently got in hot water uh, for something he said on Facebook. And I'm going to turn now to a, an article, I think from the Denver Post, about what got this professor in trouble. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, Professor Phil Graves commented on a Facebook post in which the original poster referenced Boulder Valley School District data. Uh, Boulder Valley, I, I believe, is a school district uh, around Boulder, of course. And the data 
from that school district shows that students of color get referred to law enforcement at double or triple the rate of their white peers. The post was in a private Facebook group, Boulder Collective, that had more than 12,000 members. And this professor responded to this original Facebook post saying, that is only a problem if they do not commit crimes at two to three times the rate of other students. Any evidence of that? Question mark. That's when the original poster asked if he needed evidence to show that black and Latin American people are less criminal than white people, to which the professor responded, yes. And then, and then the poster said, the original poster said, how much more time should we spend arguing about this than calling it out, especially knowing he's someone with authority and knowing he's responsible for students? This led to the predictable response that we've been seeing here at FIRE for you know, two months now, a little, over, uh, a little over a month, I should say, in which people are calling for him to be fired. And the chancellor of the university, in response, issued strong statements in support of freedom of speech, but also said, we strongly encourage anyone who doesn't want to or believes they cannot live our values of respecting the rights of others and uh, consider differences, their ability to be productive members of our community. We want ask them to you know, reconsider their ability to be productive members of our community. Now, do you believe that the professor in this case was wrong to ask that question? What do you think a university committed to the search for truth should do in responding to what it seems like are genuine student concerns that they're not going to be treated similarly uh, to other students based on the color of their skin, based on this professor's question? Wow, is what I have to say to that, Nico. <laughs> um, now, I'm taking your representation as uh, accurate, not only in that what you say is true, but that you haven't left out any relevant facts. I'm not accusing you of doing so. I'm simply stating for the record that I don't know anything about this case other than what you've told. There, there is. So he was, he was accused of being racist for that comment. And he was accused that they then subsequently went through his, the rest of his Facebook account and found one other comment in which he, uh, called, uh, New York representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hot. He says, I actually think she is pretty hot. If she was just a normal bartender, I would probably be interested. But if she is not as bright as most bartenders and far too convinced that her opinions actually matter. So those are the two accusations against him in which he's been accused of yeah. a racist and misogynist. Well, I, let, me, let me answer on my own account, because as I say, I don't, I don't know any, any facts beyond what you've told me, but I don't dispute the facts as you've laid them out. What I want to say is the, the observation that a higher rate of encounters with the police is not necessarily representative of the maltreatment of African-Americans unless one could demonstrate that that higher rate was not due to a higher rate of disruptive or criminal behavior by the black students in question. It's just a statement of logic. It's not even an opinion uh, because what, what you have are two things. You have the incidence of the event, namely the student uh, being uh, apprehended or dealt with by law enforcement. And you have the uh, hypothesis of discrimination, namely the student being unfairly treated. Um, so engagement with the police is conditional on the circumstances. If the circumstances of the behavior of students by race were equivalent and the engagement with police was higher for the black students, I have evidence of their being treated differently. This is all tautology. This is just logic, okay? So to, to be asked, oh, you mean I have to produce evidence in order to show that blacks are less criminal or no more criminal? To be asked that sarcastically 
is in effect to say, I am not interested in whether or not, as a matter of fact, blacks are more criminal. I hypothesize and insist that you agree with me as a matter of assumption that they are uh, are not. Well, we can decide to do that, and we could decide to do that about a lot of different things. We could do it about climate change. You know what I'm saying? Don't look at the facts. Let's just agree as a matter of assumption that it's not a problem. We could do it about COVID-19. Don't look at the facts. Let's just agree that it's not a problem. So, so that's no nothingism is 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 what that is. So that that's just the first observation that I want to make. The idea that the president of the university would then basically say, Chancellor uh, University. A chancellor, you know, you can leave if you want to, if you're not going to support our students. And the, the idea that students might be made to feel bad by this, because that's certainly true. They could be made to feel bad by it. It might make them feel very uncomfortable. They might not feel welcome in a place that deals with facts that they find very difficult to deal with, assuming they're facts. But when was the university declared to be the place for making students comfortable? That's nowhere on my list of what it is that I think these precious institutions are instantiated in order to accomplish. So that's the tail wagging the dog. Comfort of the student determines whether or not we will inquire about facts relevant to drawing important ethical conclusions, which could have profound implications for how we organize society. That's the tail wagging the dog. A pedagogical question because I've seen this in a lot of the reporting here and in with my conversations with students across the country over the past couple of years, I've been seeing an increasing, an increasing number of students uh, when confronted with challenging ideas or ideas that they fundamentally reject, you know, argue that it's emotionally exhausting to engage with some of those arguments. Or in some cases, you hear the, the phrase said that, you know, the arguments belittle or deny their humanity. I don't know if you've ever seen these or, or heard these arguments. But it, it, for me, it's really tough to engage uh, with a student when they make that argument because it's it's not really falsifiable. You know, it, it's not really my place to say that their humanity's not being denied or that they feel their humanity's being denied, or it's not my place to say that it isn't emotionally exhausting to have to respond to arguments that they perceive as denying their humanity rep repeatedly. So my question is, you know, especially if you're a professor and you hear this sort of retort to, you know, a claim or a hypothesis, how do you get the student engaged without, you know, escalating the situation into either a shouting match or one where they, they don't trust you as a teacher anymore, if that makes sense? I don't know a pat answer to that question. The question made uh, perfect sense to me. It's one that I've often confronted. Um, I have the advantage myself of being black. Um, and what I do to try to win the uh, window of opportunity with the student that they would suspend disbelief and um, not, not be driven into a panic by the discomfort that I might engender in them. What I do is in effect confess which is to say, I talk about my own life. I lay cards on the table. I used to be a drug addict back in the 80s, and I had to go through recovery, for example. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I know dozens of people who got into trouble with the law whom I knew reasonably well as a kid and so on and so forth. So I have, if you will, a little bit of street cred, and I can deploy it. Um, I think I'm also given the benefit of the doubt. This is me personally, since you've asked me that. Yeah. 
my, that my motives are not nefarious. I mean, I'm not obviously an anti-black racist. <laughs> I might at the end of the day be one, but I might, I'm not obviously and self-consciously one. So, so there's a little bit of a window of opportunity in there. Um, I try to give voice to both sides or all sides of the arguments that I consider, even the ones, for example, about affirmative actions or about reparations uh, for slavery or about so-called black-on-black crime, uh, you know, just to name a few about the quote-unquote status of the black family. These are, these are things that I, you know, have views about, and the views are not necessarily popular, but I try to give voice as well as I can to what the other side is. I show an awareness of it. I put Ta-Nehisi Coates on my reading list in my undergraduate course on race and inequality, for example, just to give one uh, indication of this, of this uh, strategy, this pedagogic strategy of an openness to the other argument. But at the end of the day, an insistence that if you tell me you disagree with whatever the conclusion is, please, what, what, what are your facts and what is your argument? You know, not 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 this high-handed move, uh, which is uh, both a bluff and a bullying tactic. Uh, the high-handed move is you're making me feel bad. You're a bad person. Don't say that. Uh, it's a bluff because we can all, at the end of the day, see what the facts actually are, whether we agree to acknowledge them or not. They are there, staring us in the face. And it's a bullying tactic because they're basically telling you to shut up. Um, and uh, you know, I'll just say something that the fire audience is probably going to all agree with, but they don't—they don't get to tell me to shut up in the university when I'm making an argument. I want to ask: You've been in the academy for a long time uh, at this point, decades. How has your experience in the academy changed over that time as it relates to this issue, both to the issue of what a university's values should be? and how those values are either encouraged or discouraged by senior administrators. And then also the separate question as to how those values are reflected by professors and students in the academy. Do you feel as though there has been a change in the approach on behalf of students to answering some of these critical questions or to exploring uh, knowledge as you see it should be explored? Have you seen a change? Yes, is my answer to that though this is, of course, very controversial. I mean, um, I, I graduated from uh, Northwestern University with a BA in mathematics in 1972. So that's the frame of time that we're talking over. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the things that have happened, the advent of ethnic studies, grade inflation, uh, the blob, what I'm going to call the blob, which is a massive bureaucracy of uh, administrative overstructure uh, that that has come into existence in the universe. Postmodernism, I know that's a slogan, but I think you might begin to get the drift of what I'm saying when, you know, you tell me that I can't, <laughs> uh, I can't teach a course of political theory and just be content to read, I don't know, Hobbes and Locke <laughs> and Hume and Smith and Mill and Rawls and whatever. I, I I can't because they're dead white men. You know, this kind this kind of idea, this didn't exist in 1972 in my recollection. Uh, I studied the German language unselfconsciously as a black kid from the south side of the Chicago from the ghetto. Uh, I was reading uh, the uh, Goethe. I'm sorry, I was trying to think about man. 
I was reading Goethe. I, I was reading uh, Kafka. I, I was I was reading uh, Thomas Mann. I, I mean, you know, I, I was actually reading it. Anyway, enough about me. <laughs> but this was great a question inflation. about you and your defense. Great, great inflation. You can't give a kid a C. I mean, you can. I occasionally do. Uh, uh, it, it is, uh, you know, I, I spend 20% of my time interacting with the students that I interact with in an undergraduate class of 80 negotiating about grades. Everybody wants an accommodation. I say, I have a, I have a policy. I don't accept late papers. They don't accept that I don't accept late papers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, de facto, am I going to flunk you out because your paper came in late or you told me, you know, some excuse or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm flailing here trying to, trying to hold the line, but, but I, I don't want to sound like an old fogey. I know that's what it's going to sound like the good old days when things were better and whatnot. Um, I think the relativism, the, Lowering of our expectations, the lowering of our standards. Anyway, uh, I'm not prepared to answer the question, so I apologize. No, it's okay. I, I want to bring up kind of in the context of this question, uh, a report issued by the University of Chicago in 1967. It's famous in academic freedom, free speech circles. It's called the Calvin Report. It's a report on the university's role in political and social action. Uh, they decided to issue this report because there was a lot of stuff going on in the middle part of the century, as you know, and they were increasingly being called in to weigh in on, on the social or political action. And so this report, uh, chaired by Harry Calvin, uh, but consisting of a committee of a number of faculty members, an answered the question, what is the university's role in political and social action? And they decided that the mission of the university is the discovery, improvement, and dissemination of knowledge, more or less in line with what you were stating at the top of the show. And they go on to say, universities faithful to its mission, a university that is faithful to its mission will provide enduring challenges to social values, policies, practices, and institutions. By design and by effect, it is the institution which creates discontent within the existing social arrangements and proposes new ones. Now, it then goes on to say the instrument of dissent and criticism is the individual faculty member or the individual student. The university is the home and sponsor of critics. It is not this itself the critic. Uh, the university must maintain an independence from political fashions, passions, and pressures. And that's kind of what I was asking in the last question. Yeah. Is, are we getting away from that idea of a university as an incubator? for thinkers, namely for faculty members, and then to a lesser degree, probably the students, and more getting towards the role of a university as kind of uh, not just doing that, because I think most universities still do that, but also advocating for social justice causes. And you see this not just in universities as, as well. You see other institutions across the country in the wake of uh, the George Floyd protests. I mean, I go to Amazon's homepage and there's a big Black Lives Matter banner at the top of it. You're hearing now that the NBA will put Black Lives Matter on the side of its basketball courts. I go to submit my expense report. My expense report company has a Black Lives Matter on it, uh, banner on its homepage. You're seeing well, a lot of these yeah, institutions I, that were devoted to one thing now expressing themselves 
on other matters. Uh, I, I just want to I want to stop you for a minute. I, I hear you on the University of Chicago, the uh, the statement in, in, in hand, and it conforms very much with my own view of things. I want to stop you because what I think is going on at Amazon and like places is a little bit of, of covering their butts. Uh, they're trying to, uh, you know, preempt uh, the possibility that they could have uh, uh, profit uh, damaging consequences to becoming, you know, the site of some kind of conflict. Uh, I think that's one of the things they're doing. I think there's branding. Uh, I think when you see the NBA, the NFL, what else would they do? Uh, think about who their players are. They, they're, they, they, their whole uh, uh, business plan depends upon the maintenance of a certain kind of reputation. So, of course, they're going to avail themselves. These are not universities. This is it's, it's a qualitatively different thing when a university uh, caters to the popular uh, whim uh, of the fatter fashion. I mean, it's a little bit like investing in, you know, what the uh, cafeteria is going to be serving the students for dinner, as opposed to investing in the faculty or investing in the latest of the, you know, I've got a 12 lane uh, swimming pool that's uh, in this modern building or whatever it is. I'm selling the university based upon the consumerism demands of the clients, the customers, the paying customers, and, and then we become a business enterprise and not a uh, and not a uh, not a university, so so I expect business enterprises to be business enterprises. I expect Nike uh, to worry about. Uh, I expect the NFL to find a way of employing Colin Kaepernick or whatever. They've got a difficult balancing act, but but they're they're corporate entities and they're driven by popular demand in the marketplace. Uh, the the university it's a, it's a different thing, and I think I think this is happening, and I think it's really quite tragic. Um, and I, you know, uh, I can remember you asked me how things have changed over time. I remember the debate over sanctions against South Africa before the fall of apartheid. And I can remember that there were university presidents who basically said no. In fact, I used to work for one of them. His name was John Silber at Boston University. He said, no, I'm not going to kowtow to your popular whim. I don't have to uh, boycott. Uh, I'll, I'll have uh, Helen Sussman or Gacha Budalezi at one of these controversial anti-sanctioned South Africans liberals come and, and speak at my university. That's absolutely inconceivable now. Uh, the, the commissioner of police for the city of New York, the sitting commissioner of police, Ray Kelly of the city of New York in 2013, I think it was. Yes, you're wasn't right. Permitted to, wasn't permitted to speak at Brown University. Students said they felt violated by his presence on campus. I mean, I, I thought that was the low, low, low moment uh, in the history of our enterprise here. It was as if policing a city like New York is a self-evident thing. You don't think he has anything useful to say about that? Don't you want to engage the problem? You think you know the answer? Racial profiling is wrong. It's racism. Uh, stick my head in the sand and throw a fit. I mean, I understand that sophomores act like that in the dorm room after they smoke the blunt. I don't understand why a university would act like that, this kind of thing. So, um, well, do you think that these universities could be facing some of the same challenges and considerations that the corporations are insofar as, you know, you, you, you mentioned the branding, you mentioned the, the profit motive. I mean, there is potentially a concern on behalf of the administration that they'll lose 
uh, future students as a result. And then there's also the challenge that I think is underappreciated, but anyone who works uh, for a company or an institution knows is the internal consequences and the internal discord uh, if there's a prevailing uh, opinion about something and you go the opposite direction. The the loss of uh, staff and faculty, the constant complaints and HR uh, filings that you receive. Do you think that that has contributed to this or do you think that this is actually um, held as a value by a lot of the presidents who are making these statements, including uh, Christina Paxson, that they actually think the university should be opining on more questions? I think they believe in what they're doing. It maybe not to a man and woman, but I think largely this is the zeitgeist. This is the culture of of uh, higher education administration. I, I think it's complicated, and you'd need a culture critic, and which I'm not. I'm an economist. <laughs> to to parse it, you need someone who had a a deep reading in you know many different veins and in, uh, terms of uh, uh, recent American history to try to understand. You know how we've how we've come to where we are, but I think I think they really believe it. Uh, look at this Title IX stuff. I mean, you know, that's obviously a digression from what we're talking about, but uh, it's 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 kind of uh, people are, are are righteous. They're on the right side of history, uh, and uh, likewise, we respected diversity and inclusion. You can't even question affirmative action. Uh, that debate is over. Uh, I lament, uh, I say this as an African-American, I and, and I know that it's controversial, but I think, my God, we have now arrived at the end state. And the end state is the permanent institutionalization of different standards of academic achievement applied to the selection of African-American uh, versus others. And that's how we're going to live. And it's as if people are daring you to say, but you just lowered the standards. Oh, no, they are daring you to say, well, if you admit them with lower scores, they're probably not as good as students. They don't. What did you do? You just said they weren't as good as students. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, all I did was say that the reason we have the test scores in the first place is because we think it helps us to predict who's going to be a good student. Um, you can't even debate it. I know that they believe it. I, I, I know these people. Uh, some of them are my friends. I mean, at high rank, at, you know, provost at, at major institutions and stuff like that. Uh, they believe it. They think you can have um, a, a, a larger number of uh, African-Americans appointed in the STEM fields at their institution without lowering standards. Every one of them thinks so. When I point out it can't be true for every one of you because of musical chairs, there's not a seat for everybody. Uh, they look at me with a blank stare. They don't know what I'm talking about. Of course, we would never lower standards here, you know. Um, so uh, if you're asking me, I think they drunk the Kool-Aid. Are there questions in the academy that are no longer open questions and that a university can feel very confident in speaking to uh, without concern that they might violate those values that we had talked about being essential to a university before. So, for example, the Earth is not flat. Right. You know, the Earth is not the center of the universe. Those are pretty close questions in the academy. But you're you're seeing a lot of people saying that there are certain questions related to race and sex and uh, other protected classes that are also not open questions and that to allow debate and discussion of, of them is to... Uh, reopen a wound, essentially, for some of these uh, protected classes that would make their experience in the university uh, hostile and compromise their ability to uh, receive 
and education? Or do you see those, some of these questions as being fundamentally different, even though they're argued to be one and the same? Uh, at least I see them to be argued as one of the same by some students on campus. I think there's an interesting point here, uh, which is what matters do we, uh, in the sense that uh, we knowledge is cumulative and uh, we build on the shoulders of, stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before, do we regard as settled and, and essentially don't spend resources uh, adjudicating because uh, those resources are better spent elsewhere because this is a settled matter. And claims like, is the earth the center of the universe or is the sun the center of the solar system sitting in the Milky Way are, are, are claims like that. But those are claims uh, amenable to resolution through uh, you know, systematic and factual inquiry. Uh, I, I think those kinds of questions are not the questions in the main that people in the university environment are saying must not be raised. Uh, they, they're normative questions. So for example, slavery was wrong. Okay, so that's a subtle question. I can imagine a treatise that tries to defend slavery, even if it's contextualized in a certain time and place. Well, you see some people, you know, in kind of a parallel, some people argue that colonialism was good or had some good features to it, who are saying, no, no that's a settled question. Colonialism was bad. Well, see, and you see how different those questions are. And I'm not trying to opine on either one of them, but I, but I take the point. I, I take the point that there's a slippery slope if I admit that I can't inquire about this, then I'm also kind of uh, not knowing where it is that I can draw a line about what I can and can't inquire about uh, the status of women, uh, you know, the status of homosexuality. I remember within the last 25 years, I remember sitting at Boston University, two fine philosophers, Roger Scruton and Anthony Appiah, were uh, in a debate about the moral status of homosexuality. Appiah, who happens to be a gay man, was... Uh, taking the uh, position that there was no problem with the moral status of homosexuality. And Scruton, who was a conservative, he just died, uh, was taking the position that homosexuality, the uh, social prohibitions against it were uh, were morally justified. Now, that's not a question that you can even debate today. Uh, I, I don't know epistemologically if our kind of deep knowledge of ethics uh, or of biochemistry and, and neurology and all of that and sexuality have so advanced that whereas in 1998, this was an arguable question, but in 2020, it's not. I, I rather doubt that. Rather, I think that we have a consensus commitment to certain moral uh, values, which precludes uh, being challenged. Uh, but but the, 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 the stance that you can't challenge this is not really a claim about facts or about the world at all. It, it, it's a claim about our normative uh, commitments. And uh, I, I don't, I don't want to conclude here uh, whether uh, there aren't certain normative commitments that I would not want to have debated because I think that's a very, I think that's a very subtle question. And I'm, I'm not a philosopher either, but I think, you know, I think that's a very subtle and, and difficult question. Uh, but I want to distinguish all of that from other kinds of questions that you're supposed to not ask, like uh, the question that Charles Murray asked about intelligence and about its uh, genetic uh, foundation, if any. Uh, to my mind, that, it, that too is, of course, a question that's out of bounds and you can't ask. But I think that's a mistake uh, because I think that is a kind of know-nothingism. That's a kind of... Uh, 
I can't bear to know this about the world because if it were true, it would be so horrible. You can't preclude that question a priori, I, I would say. And I'm not advocating anything here. I'm not saying I want to do IQ research or I don't or whatever. I'm just saying you, you can't free from evidence preclude an examination of a question of that sort. And I regard that as a different kind of issue than the issue of I'm not prepared to debate whether or not women are entitled to equal status in the political economy. I am not. I preclude that question. I'm not interested in it, uh, the debate about whether or not the sub uh, subjugation of women is justifiable. I'm not interested in that question. I'm also not, as a matter of fact, interested in the IQ question very much, but I would, I would dare say a university could not preclude the in, in, inquiry into that question on scientific grounds. It, it's interesting uh, that you say all this. I, I'm reflecting now on a conversation I had, what was it, two years ago with Randall Kennedy over at Harvard. Yeah. And he said something that reminded me of something that John Stuart Mill said. Uh, he told me a story about a debate that he had at Harvard on affirmative action. And I believe he was on the pro-affirmative action side. And he said he just got his clock cleaned in the debate. And then he came back. He, well, he took that as a, as a chance to learn more about the issue, research more about the issue. And then he was asked subsequently, I don't know how much longer later, to participate in another debate on affirmative action. And he said he did much better. And he thinks he got the better of it. And that got me thinking about John Stuart Mill and On Liberty when he says that, you know, when we foreclose questions or we refuse to debate questions, we hold our truths as dead dogmas and not li living beliefs. Now, it might be that there are closed questions like, is the earth round or, you know, is the sun the center of our universe? But what John Stuart Mill is arguing that it is to not debate it means to not really understand why you believe it. Yeah. That, that, um, that, you know, if I were confronted today by a flat earther, what evidence would I marshal to argue the earth is round? I, well, you, I don't you, know that I would bring <laughs> logic to it because I never have to argue that. And I think that's, you know, what uh, kind no, of what I, Randall I, I was talking it. about. I, I get what you're saying, Nico. And I know I know this argument about Randall Kennedy. I know it very well. Uh, and of course, what you do is you pull out your phone and you go to Wikipedia and <laughs> in about 90 seconds, you would be able to explain what the experiment was that, you know, <laughs> et cetera. But, but I get it. I, I know that passage in On Liberty. Uh, and I always thought that this idea that even if I'm right, if I don't work out my muscles, my, you know, cognitive muscles by defending yeah. the correct position, I'll forget why I'm right. And my, my rectitude will now be a kind of dead, stale, habitual recitation. I, I won't really know why I'm right about the things that I'm saying. And I, I always thought that that was a profound, that was a profound observation. In, in Kennedy's case, I think I know exactly where he lost the first argument and won the second. In fact, I think I might have been present at the second debate with Stuart Taylor here uh, at, at Brown University, where I think Randy, in fact, did get the better of it. And, and the point was, uh, Randall wrote a book called For Discrimination, in which he defends affirmative action by acknowledging at the outset it's racial discrimination, but I just think it's permissible racial discrimination. And I think 
Uh, in that first encounter, Randy had tried to deny the fact that you were discriminating against white people when you were practicing affirmative action. And he realized that was an untenable position. I, it's funny you say that now because I, I, I must have just read an article yesterday where uh, the state of California, which prohibits uh, affirmative action, is looking to remove the clause in its state constitution, I believe, that prohibits discrimination based on race because they can't implement affirmative action in the state of California, unless that clause is, pro- I don't know if you're familiar with that development. I am. What, what, what I'm very familiar with it. In 1996, ballot proposition 209 was enacted in California, which amended the state's constitution as their ballot proposition uh, process allows, so as to forbid affirmative action. So I gather in effect, they're talking about rescinding or repealing uh, Proposition 209 to clear the way to be able to restore affirmative action in California. Yeah, that just that just got me thinking about what you're saying with Randy about how he changed his position because he realized that he he his position that affirmative action wasn't a form of discrimination, valuable though some might see it is, uh, is uh, functions as a form of discrimination. But I want to close out this conversation. Yeah. Uh, by asking you about something that you kind of referenced earlier. I think you called it the blob, yeah, uh, which is the growth of the ad- administrative class in the university. What do you see as the role of faculty within the university? And as that administrative class has grown, and I think now administrators outnumber faculty, how have you perceived, uh, have you perceived any decline in the role that faculty take in questions uh, such as the one that Christina Paxson opined on in her letter. I should note that the Calvin report at the University of Chicago in 1967 was a report that was commit while it was commissioned by the president was written by the faculty because it seemed as though the president thought that it was a faculty matter to discuss. So I wanted to get your sense on that. What, what I think, I mean, I'm old fashioned. We are the university. <laughs> the, the rest of the people are the help. That's what I think. I, I, I put that in a very crude and intentionally provocative way. But here's what I mean. I mean, there's supposed to be expertise, right? You have these departments, you have these chairs, these professors, tenured and whatnot. Uh, the physicists don't try to tell the chemists who don't try to tell the sociologists who don't try to tell the historians what to do. Because the people who are the professors of history, chemistry, sociology, and uh, biology are uh, are in the position of being masters of those particular domains. They are the experts. If the university is a, is a font of knowledge, the knowledge resides in the faculty, not in the buildings, not in the grounds, and certainly not in the administrative staff. So when the university pronounces on matters of substance, of intellectual substance, when the university engages in ethical reflection, when a university makes a claim about a matter of public policy that rests upon uh, knowledge of social process and, and so on, it is only the faculty who are in a position, in my opinion, but I think this is almost definitional, to deploy the university's authority in that way. Um, again, I go back to my concern about the letter that our president sent around. Um, I think that there were matters of substance there on which the faculty ourselves ought to have been consulted before the, uni- quote unquote, the university took a position. Uh, so, so there's that. Uh, there's the idea in my mind that um, 
the, this, the source of intellectual authority in the university, which is an intellectual institution, uh, resides in the distinguished faculty who have been peer-reviewed and published, who are accountable one to another into their, uh, into their disciplines, which are now uh, largely global enterprises. Um, and uh, people shouldn't say study from Harvard. You know, the fact that it's Harvard that issued the study is not the issue. The question is who on the faculty of Harvard actually oversaw the study. Harvard's reputation is nothing but for the accumulated consequence of the outstanding intellectual work undertaken by those who are affiliated with That's a very Socratic position as in a position that I believe Socrates took, which was that, you know, I am the teacher and you are the students. And this space that I've created is, is there to serve, you know, me and what I believe uh, my pedagogical should, approach should be and not really necessarily to serve you, the students. I kind of let you come here is uh, my understanding of his position to learn from me. Do you feel like if you wanted to, could host a debate at Brown right now about uh, President Paxson's letter and about some of the claims that are baked into that letter? Or do you feel like given the current environment and all the things that we've discussed in this uh, conversation, that that would be something like the Ray Kelly incident in 2013 that would be open to potentially being shut down by protesters? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, that's a difficult question. Um, President Paxson's letter was meant to show solidarity with a movement for uh, combating uh, anti-Black racism. I now practically quote, okay, it's very important to say the anti-Black before the racism in the current lexicon. So it's anti-Black racism. Uh, that's just how political, that's just how specifically partisan uh, the, the the nature of the discussion has become. But in any case, she was trying to show solidarity, as are the endless number of letters. You know, every department has issued one. The anthropologists have a letter. Uh, the graduate student council has a letter, the, et cetera. Everybody has to show solidarity. It, it's funny you say that because my uh, fiance's uh, stepfather is a gastroenterologist and the Association for Gastroenterologists uh, issued a letter showing solidarity. Okay, so it go, it's gone that far. And therefore, and therefore, an open debate about the letter is a, is a way kind of of, of uh, showing contempt for the desire to be in solidarity with our brothers or massing in the streets to try to bring change finally after 400 years. Uh, and I'm not sure it would wash. I, I think it would engender a lot of of conflict. I'm not sure it's worth the trouble. You have to pick your battles. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, the alumni magazine of uh, Brown uh, went out with a uh, reprint of the president's letter. Uh, my letter was published in the city journal in which I objected to the president's letter. And one of our alumni saw it. He wrote to the publisher of the Brown Alumni Magazine and demanded that they print my letter as well so that the alumni who number in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands throughout the country uh, would know that their Brown had more than one thing to say about this matter. Uh, the issue is pending. I remember reading in the fallout of the Ray Kelly incident 
a letter from an alumna alumnus and you're mentioning alumni. So I, I, this reminded me of it who, while he was an undergraduate student, I believe in the sixties at Brown, he saw, uh, the then leader of the American neo-Nazi party, uh, come and speak at Brown. And yeah. there was of course protests at the time, but he was allowed to speak. And this alumnus went to the speech cause he wanted to see what it was all about. And he said that was one of the most educative experiences that he had at Brown because it showed him how fascism can be enticing. He said that this the speaker yeah. uh, was affable, uh, used humor, was charismatic. And he said, I didn't realize how Germans could be so yeah. deceived into supporting Adolf Hitler until I went and saw this speech. Now, maybe Brown shouldn't have allowed him to speak because if he can connive people and uh, maybe not this student, but others into potentially agreeing with his ideology, maybe that's a bad thing. Uh, But there is some sort and I I know there's um, uh, Samuel Abrams over at uh, Sarah Lawrence University took people, took his classes to see Trump rallies so that they could understand the allure of uh, Donald Trump's message. Uh, I think that's going to be a much more difficult in uh, this current political environment. Last question. Well, I'll let well, you respond to that. Yeah. Well, no, I, you mentioned Trump, and I just want to say, I, I think one characteristic feature of our contemporary environment is the advent of Trump and the necessity to calibrate what one does and what one says in light of his presence, his own pronouncements, and his political fortune. Um, and so I, you know, there, there are things that can be true that if Trump says them, then become unspeakable, um, kind of thing like that. And, and I, I think that's part of what's going on. I think it goes back to Obama, um, on the university campuses, the, the politicization. So, um, you know, to have come to be publicly, uh, questioning about Obama back when, uh, uh, he was first running for president at a lot of places, created a lot of consternation. You can probably find chapter and verse on that. I don't know. I can't remember all the instances, but I can remember there was a lot of yeah. There was a lot of talk about you know being racist if you criticized Obama in this kind. Of- you have to end a, an interview with a forward-looking question. So I've learned. Okay. So I want to ask you, what are you expecting when students are, are students returning to campus in the, in the fall at Brown, or are they doing a remote deal? I think it's going to be a hybrid. The president is going to announce the actual plan on the 15th of July, which is less than two weeks from now. It's exactly two weeks from now. Um, They floated a number of uh, different uh, uh, scenarios. um, And some of them, uh, they've announced that if you're a student and you don't want to come back for campus, you don't have to. Mm. If you're a faculty member and you don't want to come and teach in person on campus, you don't have to. Students still have to take their courses. Faculty members still have to teach their courses. All courses are going to be offered in such a manner that they can be accessed virtually if necessary. Courses of a certain size, which would require a room which with adequate social distancing uh, would would, uh, be able to accommodate the crowd. Uh, Once they're over a certain size, I think it might be 40, but I'm not sure about the number. Uh, They are, are mandatory. Uh, distance learning courses because there's no space to be able to to assemble the students in present for those courses. Some courses will be hybrid. They will meet for lecture, but the lectures may be less frequent than they would have been 
And in ordinary circumstances, that'll be supplemented by online lecturing. That's where we are. Do you think, given all of the protests this summer, uh, those protests will come to Brown? And how do you anticipate Brown will respond to them? And also, how do you anticipate your faculty colleagues uh, will respond? Do you feel as though they, like the administration, will need to show solidarity uh, to, to this cause? And, and will they be afraid to, to ask certain questions in their classrooms as a result? I don't, I think, <laughs> I don't want to disparage my colleagues. I think there are some who would be afraid. I think there are more to whom it would never even occur uh. to ask certain questions. I think on the whole, on these issues, on the diversity and inclusion issues, on the right side of history about climate change, right side of history about uh, the Trump movement, uh, right side of history about affirmative action, right side of history about reparations, I, I, I think the faculty are largely in support of the kind of left of center position that you would expect the administration to take and that would be popular with the students. So uh, there was a faculty committee that assessed the Ray Kelly incident and their report concludes that you have to balance, uh, you know, the open uh, uh, discourse imperative against the need for students to feel safe in the environment and uh, that there were ideas uh, such as uh, racial profiling advocated by the commissioner of police in New York, which uh, rose to the uh, above the threshold and uh, warranted that they might they, they might legitimately. I mean, I, I'm not quoting from this report, but the yeah. report actually report actually talks about the harm done by having the commissioner of police come and and uh, and advocate his position on uh, on policing in the city. I thought that was the concession by the faculty of a very important principle with which I did not, which with which con, uh, session I did not agree. But I, I think that was largely the position uh, of the faculty. So so I expect the faculty would be in support. Um, I think, you know, demonstrations will come to Brown. Uh, in 2014-15, when we had the Ms. Yu uh, thing and the post-Ferguson uh, uh, brouhaha on campuses. Yeah, they they were occupying the provost offices. They were uh, massed on the green. They were organizing. They were complaining about having to go to class and demonstrate at the same time. How much work is a student expected to do? It was their obligation to show solidarity with, to be, to raise their voices, and blah blah. Uh, and I expect that uh, uh, it would take the least little provocation to, to uh, get such a thing going. And frankly, I'll say this. Uh, it's uncharitable uh, to my administrative colleagues, but I think one of the reasons why people are trying to get out front and showing their solidarity is they anticipate that there's going to be trouble, uh, and they're trying to preempt, uh, you know, they get on the right side of history, curry favor with their charges, uh, you know, signal uh, their virtue. Well, Professor Lowry, I, I think we have to leave it there. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, and I, I hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thanks very much, uh, Nico. It was my pleasure. That was Brown University professor Glenn Lowry. You can follow Professor Lowry on Twitter. His handle is at Glenn Lowry. That is G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y. He is also the host of The Glenn Show on bloggingheads.tv. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. 
To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. And if you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening. <laughs>